One day he is coming. And that will be a glorious day. We've been speaking much from the book of Revelation and from the entire word of God regarding what will happen on that day when Jesus returns. In Revelation chapter 20, and beginning with verse 11, Revelation 20, beginning with verse 11, the text Brother Rick read for us this morning. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Our purpose is not to walk through this text in particular this morning, but to ask a question. It says, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God at this great white throne judgment. How did the dead get there? In what form are these people who are standing before this throne? We're going to seek to answer these questions today. You know, as you think about the Christian faith, there are certain teachings which are so central to the Christian faith that if you don't believe these things, that you're not a Christian. There are teachings that are so central to the Christian faith that if they are not a reality, then there is no Christian faith. It's kind of like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Could anybody conceivably say that if you don't have peanut butter, that you've got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? Or if you don't have jelly on it, that you've got a peanut butter and jelly sandwich? No, I mean, you leave off the peanut butter, you leave off the jelly, and you do not have a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Well, the reality is this. The Bible teaches, one, that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He did not stay in that tomb. And if he has not risen, then our faith is empty. It is worthless. There is no hope for us. And there is no resurrection of our bodies if Christ did not rise from the dead. So this teaching that is central to the Christian faith is the teaching about the bodily resurrection from the dead. Both that Christ has been raised from the dead. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead, then you are lost, you are dead in your sins, and you will face the wrath and judgment of God. The scriptures are clear about that, and we'll see that as we move forward. But also, it is is essential for us to believe that there will be a general resurrection from the dead, and that all of those who have died will be bodily raised from the dead the dead, and those who are standing before this throne at this time of judgment in this text in Revelation chapter 20 are all people who have ever lived and have been raised from the dead, given resurrection bodies, including those who are alive at the time Christ returns and will be given a resurrection body at that time. There will be some, when Jesus returns, who have not yet died in this life, but they also will be given a resurrection body. 
So let's consider the subject of the resurrection. You know, I've talked about, as we've gone through the book of Revelation, that are, there are many areas of disagreement within the Christian camp where godly Christians can disagree, and that's okay. But Christ's resurrection and the general resurrection of all people from the dead is not one of those areas where we can agree to disagree. If you do not agree with this, then you are outside of the Christian faith. So it's essential for us to understand. Children, there'll be much in this message for you today to consider. Think about this. Jesus was raised from the dead. One day, all people who die in this life will be raised from the dead. Let's consider these things. So there will be a general resurrection from the dead. All people whether saved or lost, will be raised and their souls, their spirits, which have departed from their physical bodies when they die, will be reunited with a real body that will be a body which will never die any longer. So who will be raised from the dead. Let's ask some basic questions. When, who, to what, in what form? First of all, who will be raised from the dead? The scriptures teach that all will be raised from the dead, both the righteous and the unrighteous, both believers and unbelievers, both Christians and non-Christians, all will be raised from the dead. This was taught all the way back in the Old Testament. If you want to turn to Daniel chapter 12 Daniel chapter 12 the the old testament does not speak as much about the resurrection from the dead as the new testament but yet it is there in seed form ready to sprout and spring forth as the coming of Christ drew near and he would spring forth from that grave and as we think about resurrection think about an example that we even have in nature and is used as an illustration of this in the scriptures. What happens when you plant a seed in the ground? You plant this dried up little kernel and it goes down into the ground and it begins to rot. It begins to decay, but yet life springs up from it and a great and, and living plant. And it starts off you gardeners, you know, you're always going out there and you're checking to see. And then you see the little seedlings poking up through the earth and then they grow into whatever plant they are. The picture of resurrection is a glorious and a hopeful thing for God's people. Daniel chapter 12. And let's start. I'll find my find my place at the beginning of the chapter. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. So, when it speaks of the many who sleep in the dust of the earth, 
The righteous who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awaken, but not just them, because it also mentions some to shame and everlasting contempt. So there is the resurrection of the dead spoken of there. As we look toward the New Testament, then John chapter five, Jesus explains this very clearly. That there is a day coming in which all those who are in the graves will hear his voice and will burst out of the grave. And there was a foreshadowing of that in the New Testament. Do you know what a foreshadowing is? For like coming before or a shadow, something that will represent something else that will come. Maybe you can think of the foreshadowing of the dead hearing the voice of Jesus and coming out of the grave. Was there ever an instance where a dead man heard the voice of Jesus and came out of the grave? How about Lazarus? Jesus stood and he said, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came out of the grave. One day Christ will say, come forth. And all the dead will burst out of their graves. Notice this in John and chapter 5, Jesus says, let's start with verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Some have said that it's a good thing that when Jesus stood outside of Lazarus's tomb, he said, Lazarus, come forth, lest all the dead burst forth out of their graves at the words of Jesus, come forth. Because his power is such that when he proclaims it and desires it, all will be raised from the dead. So notice this, it's not just those that are God's children, which will be raised from the dead, but all, both the righteous and the unrighteous, will be raised from the dead. One one other text, Acts chapter 24 and verse 15. Acts 24 and verse 15, the Apostle Paul says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, speaking about the Pharisees, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. This being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and toward men. So what's the answer to the who question? Who will be raised? All will be raised from the dead. When will this take place? I'm not going to preach all of this over again. I've put some sermons recently on sermon audio. But it is my understanding from the scriptures that the dead will all be raised at the bodily return of Jesus Christ. And We've looked at Matthew 13, Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15, and other passages 
which I believe demonstrate to us that when Jesus returns, he will then summon forth all of the dead and they will be gathered together for judgment. And that's the picture we see in Revelation chapter 20. And we'll focus on that text in particular in the next message that I preach with the Lord's help. So who? All, both the righteous and the unrighteous, when? At Jesus' return. And to what? To what are they raised? Notice we've already seen in both Daniel 12, John chapter 5, that it mentions that some will be raised to a glorious resurrection, others will be raised to condemnation. Okay? So the Bible speaks of it in several different terms. In Luke chapter 14, verse 14, we don't have to turn there, it says that some will be raised to the resurrection of the just. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 23, it says that those who are Christ's will be raised at his coming. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 35, it says that there are those who are willing to die in this life because they seek a better resurrection. Okay? So there's a resurrection of the just, the resurrection of those that are Christ. It's a better resurrection. It is seen as better so much so that people are willing to suffer, to face persecution, to face hardship, deprivations of all kinds in this life in order to remain faithful to Jesus because they know they're going to be rewarded at the resurrection. In Luke 14, 14, the context of that passage, Jesus says when you have a dinner party, don't just invite all your friends and family, the kind of people who can pay you back, but invite the poor, the lame, the blind, because, Jesus says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So you see, God's people are those that believe that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In Hebrews 11, verse 6, it says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For those who come to him must believe that he is, that he exists. If you're going to come to God, you've got to believe that he's real. All right? I mean, how many of you are going to go to Walmart if you don't believe Walmart exists? There is no Walmart. I'm going to Walmart today, but you don't even believe Walmart's real, okay? If you're going to come to God, you've got to believe he's real. But secondly, if you're going to come to him, you have to believe that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. You've got to believe that he's going to be faithful to his promises, that you will be rewarded, that you will be raised and rewarded on that day. You know, if you're going to come to God in faith, you're going to come to him believing that he is the God who can do what he promises, believing that he's the God that can save you from your from yourself and the sins which prove your guilt, believing that coming to him is better than fleeing from him because there's life, there's hope, there's joy in him. So, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3 says that he wants to have fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. He says, if by any means I might attain to the resurrection of the dead. 
Now, what resurrection is he talking about there? Is he saying, I want to go through these things in life so that I make sure I get raised because I might not get raised from the dead at all? No, he's not talking about that. We've just looked at Acts 24. He believed that all will be raised from the dead. But he's saying, I'm willing to suffer in this life and identify with Christ in his sufferings. I'm willing to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, even though they've thrown me in prison, because that's what happened to him. I'm willing to go into the Jewish synagogues and tell them that Jesus is the Messiah, even though they've taken me out and they pelted me with rocks and with boulders trying to bash my brains in and God preserved me. And so I lived through it. I'm willing to do that because I want to identify with Christ and be raised to the resurrection of the just because I know God will reward me in that day because he is faithful and I want him to be exalted for his faithfulness and for his love and for his grace. The resurrection to the to righteousness. Now, how, how do we attain to the resurrection of righteousness? If we make sure and get all of our brownie points in this life, if we make sure and check off all the, the Boy Scout boxes or the Girl Scout boxes, you know, make sure we've done all the good things. And that our, if our good stuff outweighs our bad stuff, is that how we make sure that we get raised to the resurrection of life? Absolutely not. Why? Because the scriptures say that we are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. We're saved by grace through faith, that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. We cannot be saved by what we do. Why not? Because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. You know, if somebody goes out and works at a job, they get wages, right? You get paid. Hopefully you get paid what you deserve. Okay? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. What is sin? Sin is disobeying God in any way, shape, and form. Whether in our thoughts, whether with our deeds. What are some things the Bible says are sin? The Bible says that if we steal, that's sinful. That if we have impure thoughts, that that's sinful. That if we have sex outside of marriage, that that's sinful. That if we are drunk and if we get drunk or get high, that that's sinful. That if we lie, that's sinful. If we cheat, that that's sinful. If we're proud of ourselves and we don't care about other people because we're just out for ourselves, that that's sinful. The Bible says that if we've done any one of these things, we are guilty as lawbreakers and as having broken all the law. It just takes one offense. And why is, why is the standard so high? Because God is perfect. He is absolutely holy. He cannot tolerate sin. He can't look at sin with any degree of favor. He can't look down on sin and say, oh, no big deal. No big deal. That's, you know, that's a violation of my commandment. That's rebellion against me. No big deal. God cannot do that. He is absolutely pure. The scriptures say that he is more pure and holy than to look upon sin. And so the wages of sin is death. 
any of you here, any of us here ever committed a sin in any way, shape or form? Yeah, that's all of us. That is all of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the scriptures teach. So there is this massive dilemma, folks. If God cannot tolerate sin and he will not justify wicked people, he's a just judge. You can't pay him under the table and bribe him off. You can't hope that he's going to overlook your case and you know just be merciful to you. Does not happen. Does not happen. So if we're all condemned by God because we've all sinned and deserve the resurrection of damnation and cast into the lake of fire, if that's every one of us, we all deserve that, then what hope is there? How do we get right with God? Because here's the thing. We've got a capital sentence in the divine court. We've already been pronounced guilty. And it's a capital sentence, eternal punishment from God for our sin. Now, if somebody gets a capital sentence, let's say they're a serial killer. And their punishment is execution by lethal injection. Is the court system going to set up a a system of brownie points and say, but if you're a good little boy while you're incarcerated and, you know, you make sure and make lots of license plates, you know, make sure and make lots of Christmas lights or whatever else you make sure and don't get any fights while you're in there, then we're going to overturn your sentence. And not only are you going to not be executed, we're going to let you out and we'll give you some money and you'll go out and, you know, be fine. Well, that would not be just, would it? God doesn't do that kind of thing. He doesn't say, well, as long as you as long as you're a good little boy or a good little girl, you can pay off your capital sentence. Absolutely not. So what is the hope for us? The only hope is that someone who does not have a capital sentence takes our capital punishment so that we can be set free. And who did that? Who is the one person who has ever lived who did not have the capital sentence against him for his own sin, but yet he took capital punishment from God upon himself so that we might be able to be saved? That is Jesus. And he could do that because he's the God man. He's both God and man. He is perfect. He is righteous. And so the scriptures say, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, that he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And what a deal. I mean, think about that. Jesus became sin for us. He took our capital sentence punishment, faced the wrath of God against sin, so that if we believe in him and show our faith and belief in him by living for him and loving him for all of our days as an evidence that we truly have faith in him. We get his righteousness. Whoa, (laughs) that is incredible. That just blows the mind that God would do that. You see, not only are we forgiven by our sins through the death which Jesus accomplished, but God counts Jesus Perfect righteousness as being ours. 
So he looks, he looks at our, you know, we've all, every single one of us, it doesn't matter if we've done any kind of time in the jail system or the prison system out here in the world. Every one of us has a rap sheet a thousand miles long according to God's standards. Every time we've broken any one of God's laws, it's put on our record. And we've got this massive rap sheet. But you know what the scriptures say? Jesus took the handwriting of ordinances that was against us. He blotted it out by nailing it to his cross. So all of the sins that were against us, because Jesus had nothing on his rap sheet, squeaky clean record, because he is absolutely pure and righteous, then our unrighteousness is blotted out when we put our faith in him and stop trying to be good little Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and get our lives right with God by paying him back or by earning our salvation. You see, nonsense. We could never do that. God has counted it all to Jesus, but then he counts Jesus' righteousness as ours. So that means every good deed that Jesus ever did When God looks at us, he doesn't see our rap sheet that is stained with filth and with blood. He sees Jesus' righteousness and purity and holiness. And we are accepted in the beloved, in Jesus, not based on what we have done. And you know what? That's hope for sinners. That's hope for me. Because I have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And I still sin and have to repent of my sins and ask the Lord to forgive me. Without that, there is no hope. There is no hope. Um, One more illustration of this. True account. There was a man who was a missionary in one of the islands. And he befriended an old pearl diver. And he tried to communicate to this friend of his, this pearl diver, over and over again... That salvation is a gift from God. It's not something that you can earn. You cannot pay God through your good works and get saved based on your good works for the reasons that I've just been explaining from the scriptures to you. And this old man could not accept that. His mindset was, no, there's no way it can just be a free gift. You have to earn it. It didn't make any sense to him that... God would forgive people's sins unless they earned that forgiveness. Well, this missionary was set to go home and he had developed a close friendship with this older man. And as he's meeting with this older man before he goes home, this man says, my friend, I I want to give you a gift before you go. And this older man pulls out a pearl, a very valuable pearl, and says, I want to give you this pearl as a gift. And the light bulb went on in the missionary's mind. As this old man explained, he said, my son, you see, dove down to retrieve this pearl, and he died in retrieving this pearl. And I want to give this to you as a gift for our friendship. And so the missionary pulled out his wallet, And he took money out of his wallet. He said, here, I want to pay you for that. And the older man said, no, didn't you hear me? My son died to retrieve that pearl. I want to give this to you as a gift. And he said, oh, no, no, I have to earn that. I have to pay for it. So the missionary tried to hand him money again. And he said, no, 
said, you're not listening. My son died. You could never pay me for that gift because my son died to earn that. And the missionary said, that's what Jesus, the son of God, did. You cannot pay God back. His son died to secure salvation. It's an insult to God to try and pay him for that which his son died to accomplish. You see, we have to accept as a free gift what God has offered to us in Christ. And so, to attain unto the resurrection of the just... We do not earn that resurrection by our good deeds. But Christ earned that resurrection for us. And if we're united in Christ in fellowship with him because we believe in him, we're trusting him to get right with God. And because we love him, because we love him. There's nobody that has true faith in Jesus who doesn't love Jesus. (laughs) You can't just say, I believe in Jesus because I don't want to go to hell. And so... Yeah, praise God, I've got my ticket out of hell. See, it's right here. But I don't really care about Jesus. I could care less what Jesus went through. I could care less about obeying Jesus. None of that matters to me. As long as 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 I've got my ticket out of hell, I'm good to go. There will be nobody in heaven who doesn't love Jesus. There will be nobody in heaven who says, I put my faith in Jesus to get saved, but who doesn't love Jesus Believe that Jesus is living right now because he's raised from the dead and show by their actions that they really do love Jesus. Because the fact of the matter is, guys, what we believe in will show up in what we do. What we believe in will show up in what we do. Okay, I've used this before. Bear with me if you've already been here. But if you believe that there's an Iron Dome missile Locked on this building, and it's going to detonate in 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5. You guys don't believe that. You wouldn't be sitting here. If you believe there's a missile locked on right now, and I'm counting down, and you believe it's going to hit when I say zero, you, you guys are not going to be sitting here. You're going to be out these doors. And what you love is going to be seen by who you find and take with you going out these doors. Right? What we believe is demonstrated by what we do. There is no one who believes in Jesus truly who doesn't demonstrate that by loving him and by seeking to follow his lead. And the only way that we can know for certain what he wants us to do is right here in this book. So if, so if you say you love Jesus, but you never open this book, you're either a baby in Christ, maybe you're a baby in Christ and you're hearing this for the first time and you're like, okay, that's what I need to do. Praise the Lord. But most likely you're not even yet a baby in Christ because if you've been in a church ever or heard anything like this ever before, then you know the Bible's the word of God and it's what God wants you to do. And if you truly love God, you're going to be in the word so that you can figure out what God wants you to do. And 
The scriptures say, make your calling and election sure. And how do you do that? By faith in the Lord, by loving the Lord and doing good works. That is an evidence to you and to other people that a true change has taken place in your life. Right? How do you know if you've been saved? Well, I'll tell you this. If God has saved you by the power of the Holy Spirit, change will start in your life. You cannot have an encounter with the living God and not change. It's impossible. You cannot have the Holy Spirit of God come in you and make you a new creation and remain your old self. It's not going to happen. Now, does that mean we become perfect overnight? Absolutely not. But it does mean that we begin to change. It means that we no longer have a taste for sin. And when we sin, we don't like it anymore. We, we, we realize that we've sinned against God and we want God to forgive us for sin. It means that our thinking is going to change as we think about truth from God's word and as we think about how to treat other people and interact with other people. You know, and as we mature in Christ, our thinking is going to be transformed about all areas of life. It'll be transformed about work and how we should work and what jobs we should do. It'll be transformed about family and how we should raise our kids and how we should interact with our spouses. It'll be transformed as we think about politics and as we think about what political positions are right and wrong according to the word of God. It'll be transformed as we watch the news and we think about catastrophes and disasters in life. It'll be transformed as we go through hardship and suffering in this life and how we perceive it and how we respond to it. You see, everything will begin to change when God comes in and saves us. And as we study his word and as we get connected in a sound church where the word of God is taught, we will increase in the knowledge of God. We will mature more and more and we will become wiser and wiser as we interact in life and make godly choices. And that's what God wants for us. And if you see that happening in your life, that's an evidence that you're on your way to the resurrection of the righteous, the glorious resurrection as a child of God, not the resurrection of damnation. So we're we're called to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And you got to believe something to be a Christian. You've got to believe in Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. You've got to believe that you're going to be raised from the dead one day. But belief isn't enough because what do the scriptures say? Even the demons believe and they tremble. Does Satan have faith in God? Is Satan going to be saved? Absolutely not. He's an enemy of God. But does Satan have some pretty good theology about God? Yeah, he does. Satan is more orthodox in his knowledge and theology of God than probably uh, 90% of people sitting in churches in the United States of America. He knows more about God. He knows, but he hates God. And so it takes more than just knowledge. Love, relationship. True faith in the Lord. To attain to the resurrection of the just. But the unrighteous, the scriptures teach, those who are characterized by ungodly actions, we see this 
communicated. Here's going to be a, a foreshadowing of my next sermon. How about that? In Revelation chapter 20, it says the sea, verse 13, it says the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one according to his works. Notice that. What are people judged based on? The Bible teaches that we are judged based on our works. Now, this is interesting. Are we saved based on our works? No, the scriptures are clear. No flesh shall be justified by the works of the law or the deeds of the law. We're not saved by our works, but we will be judged by our works. Consistently throughout the scriptures, it says we will be judged based upon our deeds, our works. How can that be? How can it be that we can't earn our salvation by good deeds, but if we do evil, we're going to be condemned for it? I think the most reasonable explanation for this is what I've just been saying. What we do shows what we love. What we do shows what we believe in. And so we will be condemned by God for our sinful deeds if we continuously live a life of sin and refuse to repent, turn to God, ask Him for forgiveness because we're sorry that we've sinned against Him. If we refuse to do that, we will be condemned for every evil deed that we have ever committed, every evil thought that we've ever had, because those deeds are the fruit of our lives. They're the fruit of our lives. There's a difference between the root and the fruit, right? That which the tree produces is the fruit. But does the fruit keep the tree alive? Is the fruit what gives the tree life? No. You see, we're saved not by our fruit, what we produce in our lives. We're saved by the grace of God that flows up through our roots, like the moisture and the nutrients in the ground flow up through the tree. God is the soil in which we are planted if we have true faith in him. The fruit that we show in our lives shows whether or not we're connected to him. It's kind of like it's kind of like a toaster, you know. I I'm not a I'm not a good chef. I would say that I can make toast except I've had that experience in the morning bleary-eyed trying to push the little lever down on the toaster and it's not working and my toaster's busted and then I realize it's not plugged in. <laughs> Why can't I get this thing to stick down? It's not plugged in. What's the reality? If it's not connected to the source of power, I can push the button all day long and it's not going to heat the toast. The only thing that might heat the toast is my fury. Because <laughs> the stupid toaster won't work. Well, it's not the toaster that's stupid. <laughs> Okay, so what's the reality? We have to be plugged into the source of life that is into Christ, into God himself, if we're going to see godliness produced in our lives. 
And that which is produced shows who we are in Christ. And so, those that are not saved will be judged for all the sin that they commit. And this is reflected again in Revelation chapter 21. Notice this. Revelation 21. In verse six, and he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things. I will be his God. He shall be my son. That's a resurrection of to reward the resurrection of the just. That's what you can look forward to if you're a child of God. But what about the others? But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Notice this, they're going to be judged by their works. And they are characterized by their sin. Here's an important distinction that you will see in the scriptures. And track with me here. Think with me here. Have you ever heard someone accuse someone of being a liar? Because they believe them to have lied one time. The Bible makes an important distinction between those who are characterized by sin, such as being liars and those who may lie, but who will be forgiven of their sins. Here's the reality. This list here is a sampling of wicked people who are unrepentant of their sin and who will be cast in the lake of fire. And so it says all liars will be cast into the lake of fire. Does this say anyone who has ever told a lie shall be cast into the lake of fire? If it says that, then I'm damned. And you're damned because I dare say every one of you has told a lie. But notice it says all liars will be cast into the lake of fire. This says a sexually immoral will be cast into the lake of fire. Then the majority of us are in trouble because this means if we've ever had a sexually impure thought and lusted after someone that is not our spouse, or if we've ever committed fornication, had sexual relations with somebody with whom we are not married to, we have committed this sin. But does this say that anyone who has ever lusted or committed sexual immorality will be cast into the lake of fire? No, it doesn't. But it says the sexually immoral will be. What's the distinction here? I'll quote it for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 9 through 11 says, Do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, those who have sex outside of marriage, nor idolaters, those who worship other than God, And it goes on with the list. Thieves, covetous people, drunkards, homosexuals, sodomites. It says none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. But then it says this. And such were, past tense, some of you. But you were washed. 
But you were sanctified, but you were justified by the Spirit of God in the name of our God. You see, here's the reality. If you are a child of God, forgiven of your sins with the righteousness of Jesus covering you, even if you have been a drunkard, God does not see you as a drunkard. You will not be condemned for your drunkenness. You are identified as a child of God. And so one of the big issues I have with with groups like Alcoholics Anonymous and, and so many others out there is that they tell people over and over again, you've got to tell yourself constantly, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic, I'm an alcoholic. If you're a child of God, you are not identified by your sin. And you have hope and power and grace for change because God is working in you. I have issues with the idea that I'm a gay Christian. Now, don't misunderstand me. There are believers who struggle with same-sex attraction. And it's a battle and a temptation that they have to face just like a straight guy or a heterosexual guy has to make sure not to lust sinfully after a woman. Okay? And we we do not say there is no hope for someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. But what we say is this, that if that is a battle for you, then you need to fight that fight, just like we have to fight not to lie if we feel like we ought to lie, just like we have to fight not to lust after women if we're... we're um, Lusting after women wrongly, just like we have to fight not to steal if we feel like we should compulsively steal, just like we have to fight not to shoot up or to take that drink, right? But you see, all of those things are in the realm of temptation and God gives us hope and grace and strength to change. And so we do not identify ourselves as being drunkards or alcoholics. As believers, we do not identify ourselves as being a gay Christian. We do not identify ourselves as being a kleptomaniac or fancy name, you know, and they probably have a different one now in the latest psychological literature for somebody who has compulsions to steal. No, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You don't have to identify yourself with your sin. And you don't want to be identified with your sin. All those ultimately identified with sin are cast into the lake of fire. They're damned. They're condemned. You see how practical theology is? We're doing theology here right now. We're studying the things of God. We're studying truths and then we're seeing how they apply in our lives. This is important. This is important. Okay? Do you want to attain to the resurrection of the just? Do you want to stand before Jesus and hear him say, well done, my good and faithful servant? Or do you want to hear him say, depart from me, you who have worked lawlessness. I never knew you. Which do you want? Ask yourself, whom do I love? Who do I love? Do I love Jesus? How do I know? Am I living for him? And then fuel your faith with the truths of who Christ is and what he has done. Right? Fuel your faith with that. 
Some of you out there right now, you might be starving your faith. You might be starving your faith. You might be starving your faith because as you walk out this doors, you don't think about the Lord anymore. You you're not reading his word. You're not talking to his people. Perhaps you're never listening to godly music. You might be doing the opposite or, or even going so far as to not as more than just starving your faith. You may be drowning your faith with ungodliness and perversion. The reality is God's given us means of grace. Means of grace to be able to grow in our faith. Things that he has told us, I will meet you here and I will strengthen you through this if you do it. Those are things such as reading his word. Prayer to him. Fellowship with him. Sitting under the preaching of the word. The Lord's table, which we'll partake of here in a little while. These are things the Lord has said. These are things I have ordained, I have put in place to help strengthen your faith. If we're not engaged in those, we're going to be starving. So we don't do it. And I I don't do this to beat you over the head legalistically. I say, eat. (laughs) I say, enjoy. Right. Partake freely. God has given. And we want to be blessed so that we can be a blessing. So the resurrection of the just. When is this resurrection at Jesus return? Who all both the righteous and unrighteous to what the righteous to glory, the unrighteous to torment in what form the resurrection is a bodily form. And in Hebrew or in uh, Philippians chapter nine, it says that our resurrected bodies will be fashioned after Jesus body. Philippians chapter three says our resurrected bodies will be fashioned after his Christ resurrected body. So what does that mean? What are some characteristics of Jesus in his bodily resurrection? He had a, a real body because he could eat. He ate fish and honeycomb with him, did he not? He said, I'm not a spirit or a ghost because spirits don't have flesh and blood and bones like you see that I have, right? He had a real body. It was recognizable. He could eat. He could move things. Our bodies will be fashioned as his. We're going to have real bodies. But the scriptures tell us that they will not be corruptible bodies. They're going to be incorruptible. First Corinthians chapter 15. They're not going to decay. No cellular degeneration. No wrinkles and getting old. All this stuff that we go through. No cancer, no heart disease, incorruptible bodies. And the scriptures say, 2 Peter chapter 3 is a key text that we're going to live in a real world. The new heavens and the new earth, it's going to be a real creation. It's going to be paradise. Because you see, God is into the resurrection business. Why? Because he's the creator. The fact that he's going to raise the dead flows, for one thing, from the reality that he's the creator. What happened? He created the world. And he said, 
It is good. It is good. It is good. It is good. Oh, wait. I made a funny little creature over there. That one's not. No, he didn't say any. The only thing he said, it, it, the first time he said it is not good is when he said it is not good that man should be alone. So what did he do? He created a woman as, as a helper comparable to him. God created everything good. The world was then cursed by whom? Who cursed the world? God cursed the world. If you look at Genesis chapter 3, the curse came as a result of human sin being tempted by Satan, who was the first sinner, but it's God who put the curse on the world. God is the one who said to Adam, you will toil with the sweat of your brow. God told Eve, you're going to bring forth children in pain and suffering. God is the one that put the curse on the world because sin had come in the world and he's a just judge. Well, God, though, because he's in the business of resurrection, is going to restore the cosmos. Romans chapter 8. The entire creation groans and waits for the revealing of the sons of God. Waits for our resurrection when the whole creation is going to be restored. God will raise from the dead because he is the creator. God will raise from the dead because he is the consummate lover. Love flows from his very being. And so for his children who endure much and suffer in this life, he will raise us from the dead to suffering no more because his love is so great. And what did the scriptures say? Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans chapter 8. God is in the resurrection business because he's the creator, because he's he's love and love flows from him, and also because he is just. He is just and he has promised us that we who are in Christ will have this body fashioned after Christ's resurrection body. He will thus raise us from the dead because he is just and he will restore all things. And also God has created us as unique beings. You realize we are the only beings in all of creation that have both a body and a soul. There's Jesus, because he took on our our material form, but we are the only beings in all creation that have a body and a soul. Human beings. Do animals have a soul that will never die? Will animals be raised from the dead? No. Absolutely not. I'm sorry. Your dogs, your cats, your parakeets, your gerbils, your goldfish, they're not going to be there at the resurrection. (laughs) They don't have a soul that will never die. Do the angels have a body? Can they ever die? They can't die. What happened to the angels that sinned? They were all condemned to death. Did Jesus come and die in order for angels who became demons when they sinned? Did Jesus die for the demons? He did not. Hebrews chapter 2 says he did not give aid to angels. We are unique in the creation in that we have a body and we have a soul. That's why we can eat animals, but we ought not eat people. (laughs) That is why... That is why, historically, Christians 
have had respect for and treated with respect, they're dead. Because we know that there's going to be a resurrection of our bodies. Because God created us not to be disembodied souls. He created us to be a comprehensive being, body and soul. And so when we die because of sin and that we've been cursed, but yet we're redeemed by Christ, God will reunite our souls with a resurrected, incorruptible body because God does not want us to exist forever as disembodied souls. He created us as comprehensive beings. And we're the only beings in the universe that he created in such a way. And we're the only ones that Jesus died to save. Now, does that exalt us? Does that, wow, look how special we are? No, what we should do is say, praise God for your grace and mercy. And then when we recognize how horrifically we've sinned against him and how ungrateful we have been to him for his gratitude, for his mercy toward us. Then we praise him that he would forgive us and send Jesus to save us. And so this doesn't lead to us boasting in ourselves, at least us boasting in God. But it does lead to us treating human beings with dignity and respect. That means we do not murder our children. That means we do not leave corpses lying in the street to rot, but we give them a proper burial. You see? Theology informs our practice. And ultimately, as we move to partaking of the Lord's table now, we rejoice because before the world was even created, God, knowing exactly what would transpire because of his decrees, he decreed that his son Jesus would come and would die. Because Jesus in scripture is called the lamb slain before the world was even created, before the foundation of the world. And in Psalm chapter 16, David, inspired by the Holy Spirit, 900 plus years before Jesus even came, said of Jesus, your Holy One will not see corruption. That Jesus would burst from that grave. And as the song says, hear the bells ringing, they're singing, Christ has risen from the grave. Christ the Lord is risen today. Sons of men and angels say. Lo, in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior, waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose. With a mighty triumph over his foes. Because death could not keep its prey. Jesus, our Savior, burst from the grave in glorious day. And so we serve a living Savior. We know that he is risen. Because God has said so in his word. And so our resurrection is secured because of Christ. And we can partake of his table.
if we are in Christ and following him. Father, we ask that you bless this time and that you would inspire us by the reality and truth of who you are. Bless this time of partaking in Jesus' name.